biblical view of marriage and sexuality. For most young people today in our cultural moment, navigating what healthy, fulfilling human sexuality really means is like working a minesweeper in the Atlantic during World War II. Highly problematic and highly dangerous. The agents of a revived paganism have their incendiary devices laid within the public school curriculum, the media, in the entertainment industry, and throughout the corridors of political power and all cultural life. This open conspiracy is making for social chaos, confusion, and in many cases, total ruin, as biblically illiterate generations discover the consequences of the pagan worldview and its implications for sexuality. Instead of a healthy recognition of the beauty and joy of sexual intimacy within marriage, that is between one man and one woman, unity in diversity, the norm is now seen as adultery with the added convenience of no-fault divorce, fornication, cohabitation, homosexuality, bisexuality, various expressions of pansexual androgyny, and an ever-expanding list of other perversions. The human casualties are not just those who practice sexual immorality, but the aborted children who are now effectively offered as political sacrifices to the sacred feminine, the goddess of Earth, the planet being her body, who demands total emancipation and self-realization. Her feminist priesthood in the political class believe these sacrifices are necessary for love, freedom, and social justice. As we pass our children through the fires to Molech, what is vulgar, lewd, and debauched is counted as entertainment, as barlism regains strength. Thus, Fifty Shades of the Pornographic is everywhere marketed, capturing those as young as 13 in debilitating addiction, lobotomizing the mind, and rendering impotent the body. The pornographic cult feeds the human right of prostitution, which in turn profits the industry of sexual slavery, as young women are callously abused as objects for consumption. Gender identities are multiplied exponentially in accord with any sexual predilection or inner fantasy of identity, embracing Carl Jung's transpersonal, occult psychological theories still masquerading as science. Immorality is publicly celebrated, out loud and proud as what for centuries was considered deviance is legalized, celebrated, and given the label marriage as part of the redefinition of the family, sexuality, and personhood. Now, just as biblical marriage is a symbol and sign of the gospel, the relationship of Christ to his church, Homosexual marriage functions now as the new sexual sacrament of the pagan re-envisioning of God and human identity. This progress continues unabated. While sanctities are laughed at and spat upon, and biblically faithful believers are victimized as ignorant bigots or mentally ill resistors of the new liberation of man from the evil restraints of Christian morality, to the freedom of acting in accordance with nature. These doubters are outside the new community and must be silenced. 
So those bold enough to speak out against the coming sexual utopia risk the wrath of the cultural elite and trial in their heresy courts for crimes against the new humanity and the divine rights of the collective. Yet with all this hostility to the beauty of the gospel depicted for us in the marriage relationship, the Christian still has no right to despair. There is nothing essentially new in any of the sexual practices described previously. Even the multiplication of genders can be found in Native American pagan spirituality, from whence the progressives derived the term two-spirited. The rate of cultural change is new, brought about by changes in technology and communications, but there remains nothing new under the sun. Man, in rebellion against God, conspires and plans against the Lord, but his Babel Tower is always brought to nothing. The Christian faith has been here before. It defeated paganism in the ancient world, and since then has cast it down wherever the faith is proclaimed and lived with integrity. Paganism will again be defeated in the West if the church will be faithful. To do so requires patient obedience and the rebuilding of God's order laid down in his word. How can we rebuild a healthy Christian understanding for our time? Well, we must begin with our understanding of the doctrine of God as it relates to marriage. Dr. Peter Jones writes, when God created the world and sanctified it by making distinctions, he imprinted his own person on the way things are. God's own mysterious person gives ultimate expression to the notion of exclusive, faithful communion between separate beings. For the God of theism is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons bound in eternal communion. Together they collaborated to create the material universe, and it is that divine image that the universe reflects. Christians know God in a union comparable to marriage, and in marriage, a relationship in which neither partner abandons his or her identity, but both are nevertheless united in deep intimacy. So too, we human creatures can maintain our differences with God and still have a true and living union with the Creator. God's tripersonal communion, the interpenetration of the Trinity, where distinctions are maintained without the loss of oneness or unity, is basic to defining the normative pattern of the created good of heterosexual intimacy in covenantal faithfulness. This theological basis for God-glorifying, relationally satisfying, and non-destructive human sexual relations is the foundation of the Christian understanding of marriage and human sexuality. However, it is certainly fair to say that this has not always been adequately reflected in the history of the church's teaching and example. As a result of the church's inconsistency, misunderstandings of the Christian view have led to ignorant caricatures or completely erroneous characterizations being accepted by people unfamiliar with the biblical material. Contrary then to populist opinion, the scriptures everywhere encourage sexual intimacy in marriage 
as a God-given good and a true blessing. Biblical texts make plain that within the marriage covenant, sex is positively endorsed. For example, the writer of Hebrews declares, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul positively instructs married couples to show romantic affection to each other by regularly engaging in sexual relations and not depriving each other since each has authority over the body of the other in the marriage covenant. Likewise, there is no doubting the romantic and sexually erotic nature of the Song of Solomon, exploring young love in marriage. Clearly, right from Genesis 2, God's original plan for humankind was marital and sexual fulfillment in the one flesh of the marriage relationship that would result in the propagation of the human race. It is then somewhat surprising that church history shows that Christians have not always fairly represented the scriptural view. In the patristic era, for example, the impact of dualistic philosophies in the form of Gnosticism, Manichaeanism, and Neoplatonism exerted varying degrees of influence on the church fathers, who were usually not natural fathers, leading some of them to espouse a kind of sexual asceticism that denuded marriage, sex, or both, of their biblical glory, tolerating them as acceptable only to materially-minded and less spiritual believers. Most of the Church Fathers recognized that marriage was honorable, not a God-ordained institution. However, the general tone one detects towards marriage and sex was largely one of concession to human weakness for those unable to embrace celibacy or a continent that is a celibate marriage rather than a positive endorsement and celebration of God's created order and purpose for sexual fulfillment in marriage. The church father Origen, not always the most biblical of the fathers who at one point had himself castrated, went well beyond scripture and foolishly thought the serpent had seduced Eve sexually and so concluded that sexual activity must be inherently wrong since it was then the basis of actual sins. This is fanciful and unbiblical storytelling, clearly derived from pagan influences. It was a common theme in pagan antiquity to have a sexual origin for sin. We see this in Greek thought, actually, in Plato's myth of the original androgynous man, which now sounds remarkably contemporary. Even the noted Ambrose, a mentor to Augustine, thought marriage a galling burden. To refrain from marriage was thus seen by many as more holy, demonstrating a greater piety. And the great Augustine himself thought that though marriage is good and ordained by God for the propagation of the human family, if couples could refrain from sex whilst married, that was a better state because he was uncomfortable with the intense and passionate physical activity that accompanied sex. Not surprisingly, this notion of spiritual marriages gradually died out during the 4th century, but it laid the intellectual framework for the later development of the Roman Catholic teaching requiring celibacy as compulsory for clergy. 
Whilst it is always possible to overgeneralize, it is hard to see much improvement in medieval thought. Attempting to restrain lust, the Roman Catholic Church steadily developed numerous prescriptions that led to restrictions on marital sex no less than five days in seven, Thursday through Monday. Given the at times widespread sexual misconduct of monks and friars, the hypocrisy did not go over well with the people. Abstinence was required in memory of departed saints, the Virgin Mary, or the events of Holy Week. No doubt the devout really look forward to Tuesdays. Regardless of these foolish prescriptions, the time was notably promiscuous. In the fifth century, Pope Boniface bemoaned the English attitude towards sex. They utterly refused to have legitimate wives, he said, and continued to live in lechery and adultery. Mercifully, the Reformation's refocus upon scripture brought great change for Christianity in the attitude toward marriage and sex. The reformers emphasized marriage as the highest Christian ideal, which combined with their forceful rejection of clerical celibacy, raised the status of sexual intimacy and marriage significantly. The great reformer John Calvin in particular taught that the primary purpose of marriage and sex is not merely propagation of the human family, but social intimacy. He affirmed that marriage and intercourse is, quote, undefiled, honorable, and holy, since it is a pure institution of God, and that God declares himself the guardian and avenger of conjugal fidelity. He considered lifelong celibacy rashness that tempts God, unless it is a gift of grace, and considered mandatory celibacy tyrannical and diabolical. Now, though it may sound strange to some, it was the spiritual and cultural heirs of John Calvin, the Puritans of all people, who were really responsible for the elevation of the significance of sex and romance within marriage in Western culture. They likewise recognized that sex in marriage was not only for propagating the race, but also for marital joy and pleasure. We should not be surprised by this since they regarded scripture as the final authority for faith and practice. Now, certainly they were noted for taking seriously the penal sanctions for sexual sin in scripture, but not because they had a negative attitude towards sex. On the contrary, it was because they so highly valued the gift of marriage and the ordination of God regarding the sacred nature of sexual relationships that they protected it by law. For them, sex was not simply necessary, it was a God-given blessing. Indeed, far from a prudish pietism, the Puritans, as illustrated in the work of Thomas Hooker, truly expressed ardent passion in regard to conjugal love, and they regarded attempts at sexual abstinence for married couples as blind zeal and folly. They were frank, they were strongly sexed, and they were not without romance. So where did the stale myth of prudish Puritanism come from? Well, the Victorian era is responsible for the false caricature of the Puritans, portraying them as cold, passionless, and unromantic. 
This neo-Puritanism of the 19th century, marked by prudery and frigidity, was actually a product of the anti-Christian Enlightenment. The rise of humanistic rationalism exalted reasoning and denigrated other aspects of the human person. Feelings and emotions were repressed beneath a facade of stylized manners and rationality. Anything was permitted for the rationalist elite so long as it was appropriately concealed. Prostitution and pornography were actually common in Victorian England. The aristocracy in particular were often known for debauchery and lechery. Women were largely thought to be lacking in sexual desire, except prostitutes, and wives were required to endure, not enjoy sex. Prudery reigned as pregnant women were expected to stay in their homes to avoid displaying the results of intercourse, and women were denied access to reading that might be sexually enlightening, even Shakespeare. Sex could certainly not be discussed in polite company. The results of this artificial piety were not good for marriage and did nothing to strengthen the marital bond, quite the opposite. By trying to eliminate the joy of sex from marriage, many of the Victorians degraded the sexual impulse and weakened the marital union. In direct contravention of scripture, the Enlightenment man, viewing himself as incarnate reason and women as emotional flakes, patronized, degraded, and subjugated women as irrational and inferior. As such, they were treated as mere ornaments amongst the middle and upper classes, neither working nor having legal rights, totally dependent on making a good marriage. That was often a matter of family convenience rather than love. Marriage was essentially denied passion, and passion was regularly denied legitimacy. The uh, Victorian rationalism and prudishness that diminished the status of women and reduced them to romanticized objects for love novels meant that several generations of Protestant theologians distorted the Reformation view of sex and only indirectly discussed the issues of marriage without any clear reference to it. This subtle contempt for women also led to the women's rights movement, which in rightly correcting a number of wrongs, also propelled forward a radical feminism, placing women not alongside men in their rightful place, but in competition with them. Feminism has since sought to reverse the God-ordained pattern by the masculinization of women and the feminization of men to the ultimate unhappiness of both, fomenting the contemporary confusion of gender identity. The 20th century then, in reaction to this Victorianism, saw a radical pagan revolution in sexuality that abandoned all former mores of constraint including fidelity in marriage, drifting towards extreme libertinism that approves of almost any sexual practice so long as it is consensual. Thus, when people see biblical faith as responsible for the undervaluing of women or sexuality, they do not see clearly. In the Puritan era in England and early America, women enjoyed legal protection, 
manage the home and often the business alongside their husbands or alone in an age when their husbands were frequently away, sometimes for years at a time. They were mothers, but also managers, insurance brokers, and overseers of businesses in manufacturing and shipping. This was actually much closer to the biblical doctrine which paints the wife as not only mother, teacher and counsellor, but also the competent manager who takes over business affairs if needed so that her husband can assume public office as a civil magistrate. In the words of Proverbs 31:23, he can sit in the gates, that is, preside as a ruler or judge. Clearly then, the woman of Proverbs 31 is very different from the pretty doll of the age of reason, as well as the competitive, desert boot-wearing, masculinized feminist of the 21st century who is out to prove she can bear arms, arm wrestle with the best of us, and take on the role of a man as though no creational differences existed between men and women. As we will see in the next episode, the biblical and Puritan vision of sex, marriage and women was a very different, fulfilling and liberating matter. <laughs>